He's involved in a number of businesses. He's a great role model. Telling it like it is. Giving you both sides of the story. This is Cats at Night. Great American, a great New Yorker. Now, here's John Katsimatidis. This is John Katsimatidis, Cats at Night, the number one show at 5 o'clock. And this is a TriCast broadcasting out of WABC Studios in Midtown. 770 on your dial, WABCradio.com. Also 970 AM, The Answer, and WLIR in Long Island. And and we have a full house today. We have uh, uh, Mr. Nelson Happy, former dean of the law school. Regent University. Regent University. And and we have Ed Cox, 10 years as, uh, uh, as GOP chairman of New York State. And the former second in law. <laughs> yeah. All right. Was married to Trisha right. Nixon and uh, Richard 50, Nixon's 50 years, governor. Yeah, 50 president, years. president Nixon's uh, grandson, uh, grand, grand in-law, whatever. I mean, son-in-law. Sure. And Anthony Weiner, former congressman, thinking of maybe running for uh, for Congress again in, in a district. <laughs> uh, and all his friends are trying to convince him he's got a big name recognition and people, you know, you still people. A lot of people still like him. If if by thinking about it, you mean you mentioning it on the most highly rated five o'clock show? Okay, that's not all the thinking that's going into this, but I appreciate it. Well, I know you the- never know. I mean, your your son, your son Jordan is sitting sitting next to you because uh, he's watching you, and he, I heard him say, "Daddy, <laughs> run for Congress." I, I would figure he'd want me to be in a more reputable business than Congress, but. Uh, oh. <laughs> Well, well I, I do blame – How do I know the congressman because I, I blame him for eight years of de Blasio. So it's all your fault that we have our city in the state that it's in. But I, we have a fantastic show regardless. We have uh, on the line with us, we'll have uh, former police commissioner Bill Bratton. We'll also be speaking with Congressman Lee Zeldin, Paul Lounces. So we'll be talking about the economy, Dr. Peter Mikolos. But again, right now on the line for us right now, we have Commissioner Bill Bratton who's – Going to talk to us about what happened in Texas. The Governor Abbott just said a short time ago that he, quote, was misled about the officer's response. Welcome to Cats at Night. Good to be with all of you this evening. Commissioner, uh, what was right or wrong about what happened? Because everybody's still trying to figure it out. Well, John, welcome to the club. I've been following it very closely, as you might imagine, and I still haven't figured an awful lot of it out that uh, this has been one of the most problematic weeks I've ever experienced in American policing in my 50 years. It's uh, the misinformation that's been put out by government officials in Texas is mind boggling. And it continues even today. Uh, And it's extraordinarily frustrating. I have great pride in my profession, my former profession, policing. But that pride was diminished somewhat this week with the mishandling uh, by uh, Texas authorities of the one of the most important parts of dealing with the crises is accurate information, preliminary information, certainly subject to change. But there's been so much misinformation that was put out as factual that the erosion of public trust, certainly in Texas and its police forces, uh, I've, I've never seen anything like it in all my years in policing. And it's uh, as a somebody who's proud of that profession. Uh, I, I, I have so much anger at the moment about this, how mishandled it's been, uh, let alone uh, compounding the grief of those families that lost those young children to uh, uh, be hearing that some of those lives might have been saved 
but a long decision was made by a uh, apparently a police chief of a six-person police force that was put in charge of the response to this horrendous incident. No, uh, uh, mind-boggling, frustrating, and uh, I think it's going to continue to be frustrating. Commissioner Bratton, we now know that he entered the shooter entered the school at 11:30 a.m. and he wasn't shot until 12:50 p.m. That that just to me sounds outrageous. Uh, many parents had gathered outside. Some were so distraught they had to be handcuffed and tased. One mother even managed to escape the handcuffs, jump over the fence, and go and save her children from the school. I mean, it, this this can't be protocol, is it? Shouldn't they have just uh, gone after this guy? He was loitering around in front of the school with his with his rifle for twelve minutes, and then he goes in. I mean, it's just very disturbing. All of these new details that are coming out. Well, despite all the new details coming out, we're still very much in a speculative uh, stage of this investigation. Because even as they're putting it out, uh, they're correcting it almost as fast as they're putting it out. I'm still not uh, sure of the scenario of events, even as they've laid it out today, because they seem to conflict with other information we're receiving. Even as they were not entering those classrooms on one end of the school, we now understand that there may have been an off-duty uh, border Patrol agent who was sitting in a barbershop and his wife calls him from the school. She's a teacher. She's there with her daughter in the classroom. He grabs a shotgun from the barber, rushes to the school, goes in through the back of the school with two officers, and rescues a classroom of children, his wife and his daughter, even as in another part of the school is 19 police officers. 19 is the number they gave out today. In the hallways outside the classroom where the shooter is now holed up. And uh, the fact that a chief of police in a six-person department apparently opted not to break into that classroom may have resulted in the deaths of more of these young people who were effectively wounded and potentially expressing an awful expression, but bleeding out, dying literally, while they were standing up. Horrible. The Horrible. Oh, Those you poor kids. Can't put your arms around it, put your arms around this thing. Commissioner, it's it's Anthony Weiner. You know the the training of the NYPD is famous. You you guys, when under your leadership and others, have gone to actually train other police departments in handling these types of situations. Put parents' minds at ease about what goes on here in New York City. I mean, these types of scenarios must get gamed out and planned for. What what would have happened? And God forbid it ever does. What would have happened in a scenario like this with a police department like the one that you used to lead? One of the things, uh, uh, Anthony, that we attempted to do in 2014 uh, in the continuing efforts to deal with the then threat of uh, terrorism, external terrorism, ISIS in particular, that uh, during my time, we created two new units in the city, two 500-person units, all armed with long guns, heavy vests, equipment, that a 1,000 officers, in addition to our already stable emergency service unit, to try and ensure that within five minutes that we would have uh, enough officers armed with appropriate protective gear and uh, weaponry to basically go toward the shooter. The expression we use in the policing is move to the shooter to effectively you create what we call a stack. You put three or four officers together who can, in a coordinated fashion, go in toward a shooter. So that was some of the changes that in the very large NYPD we were able to bring about. We also have a school system here where we have 5,000 unarmed school police but we have very close monitoring of the school doors, et cetera, 
access and egress. So we learned a lot over the years from the Columbine tragedy many years ago. Apparently, unfortunately, uh, that it, now it seems to be shaping up, the officer in charge, the incident commander in this instance in Texas, uh, effectively, uh, all the things we learned about how to deal with this type of incident, he basically didn't uh, uh, implement them. That uh, he opted to keep those 19 officers outside of that classroom. Uh, and as this thing goes forward, we'll learn more details about what went wrong. But I would hope in New York that, uh, that we do have that capability and capacity to not have an incident like this occur in our city. Uh, Commissioner Ted Cox, uh, I find it fascinating what you said. Move towards the shooter. Uh, from my experience in that Fort Benning, they train you when you're in ambush. You run into the ambush, not away from it. Now, you spend five years in the military. And this is a basic rule, isn't it, in this kind of a situation? Well, the expectation of the public of the police, I believe the expectation of police officers who take an oath, put on that badge, is that they may be called upon to risk their lives to save the lives of others. Certainly in this circumstance, one of the things that people are, are literally aghast at, literally, are some of the comments of public safety officials in Texas. There was a lieutenant who was the public spokesperson for the uh, Department of Public Safety. And one of the interviews I saw with him, he said, well, the officers were concerned that uh, going into the building, they themselves might be shot. Yeah, I, we have that soundbite. I want to play it for you guys. I want everybody to hear what that Uvalde police chief had to say. So let's hear that Uvalde police chief. The active shooter situation, you want to stop the killing. You want to preserve life. But also, one thing that, of course, the American people need to understand is that officers are making entry into this building. Uh, they do not know where the gunman is. Uh, they are hearing gunshots. They are They are receiving gunshots. At that point... If they, if they proceeded any further, not knowing where this suspect was at, um, they could have been shot. They could have been killed. The, that comment, by the way, a correction, it's a lieutenant uh, who is the public relations spokesperson. He's the one you've seen doing the interviews at the press conferences. That every day in America, American police officers go toward the danger. They go into unknown circumstances, risking their lives. That's what's expected of them. That's what they themselves expect when they take the oath of office to protect and to serve. So that, that comment is just—I uh, have smoke coming out my ears about it. That uh, certainly there was risk and there was danger there, uh, uh, but at the same time, uh, that's what you sign on to do—to go to the danger, to go to, go to the sound of the guns. That's uh, absolutely correct, Commissioner. Commissioner, yesterday there was a Zoom call with 200 of the largest businesses in New York uh, and Kathy Wilde's uh, office, the partnership uh, with with the mayor, uh, Adams, and uh, with his, uh, what was he, chief of uh, of uh, department, Corey? Corey, chief of uh, an extraordinarily capable individual. Thank God we have Corey up there as chief of the department because he's one of the people in the NYPD that knows how to deal with these problems. If they give him more authority, more power, I think you see a very significant change in what's going on in the city. Have you uh, listened to it? Were you on it? Uh, I was not, but I'm familiar with the news reporting on it. Well, and, tell us, uh, tell us what, what you think. Well, what they're trying to do is encourage the business leaders of the city to encourage their employees to come back to work. 
and particularly to take public transportation to come back to work. As we know, the traffic in the city has become even more of a nightmare because more people taking their cars. I just did, and I just sent it over to the uh, Daily News, an op-ed relative to the subway situation that hopefully run in the next uh, couple of days, an op-ed that they requested. And it is the idea that uh, uh, the subways can be fixed, they can be made safer than they are, but it's going to take more of a coordinated plan of action rather than piecemeal every time there's an incident responding to that particular incident. You need a comprehensive, widely publicized plan of action that the public understands what's going on, mirroring what we did, John, back in 1990, when the situation of crime in the subway was much worse than it is today. Back then, there were about 50 crimes a day. Now we have about six. Back then, there were 18,000 crimes a year. Now we have about 1,000. Back then, I had 22 murders in one year. Now, so far this year, we've had four. So the crime situation is arguably a lot less, but it's 30 years later. Most of the people riding the subway today weren't around in 1990 when it was really bad. So their reality is what they read on the front pages of the paper every day. If you want to get people back on those trains, you got to start basically enforcing the quality of life below ground in terms of police more active, more aggressive, in making arrests, more fair evasion initiatives. I had a former assistant deputy commissioner work for me uh, when I was most recently commissioner. Is on a midtown train earlier this week and has an individual come up to him, pull out a knife, and say, I'm going to cut your head off. This is a six foot two fellow in his late 30s, good shape himself, and this is happening on a train midtown. Uh, and fortunately, they're apparently going to make an arrest on that situation. Not an incident that was reported in the press. So, what's going on right now is a lot happening that's not being reported in the press that's creating this fear. This fear can be addressed successfully, but it's going to take a coordinated effort. And that's what the mayor is attempting to do by getting the business community involved. So, uh, Commissioner, what is, the, what is the impact on this when DAs decide they're not going, district attorneys decide they're not going to prosecute uh, fair jumpers? People jump over the turnstile or go through the, the, uh, uh, the emergency door. There is the crux of the problem in New York City at the moment, particularly in Manhattan with the Manhattan District Attorney still not wanting to treat fair evasion as a significant enough crime worth prosecuting, particularly for repeated fair evasions. Or when we stop somebody for fair evasion, they find he's got a gun on them or that they wanted on warrants. What is missing in New York City at the moment is a willingness to punish people who continually break the law. In the post state, they're reporting on this woman that basically has almost 200 arrests for shoplifting. And every one of those arrests, she basically is let out to go out and shoplift again. That she hits a, I think, a right age you're talking about, that she basically goes in six times a day. Well, one shame on right age for a final. Uh, you know what this 65-year-old woman looks like? Stop her at the door instead of letting her in and stealing six times a day. No, the district attorneys, this is where I think Mayor Adams can basically bring them in and read the riot act to them in the sense of... Uh, Take away the, the mayor, police officers that guard him. Well, Are you allowed to do John, that, uh, 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 Commissioner? Oh, certainly, because they're assigned to the uh, district attorney's office. But, no, I think the mayor is, uh, with the high visibility that he has on this issue, is basically too visible in the sense that it allows these district attorneys to get off the radar. Nobody sees them. Nobody hears anything from them relative to these issues. So the mayor is taking all this 
responsibilities on his shoulders. I, I jokingly refer to that statue outside the Rockefeller Center of that guy trying to hold up the world. Well, the mayor right now is trying to hold up New York City by himself. And he's not being helped by the legislation in Albany, by the city council, or these DAs. Get those DAs into a room and effectively get them on board or, pu or publicly shame them for their failure to support him and the NYPD. We got a, we got the country, the world's greatest police department, and they have capabilities well beyond what they've been uh, exhibiting. But the idea is they're not doing more because they know they're not going to be supported. If you support them, they can do a lot more. Well, Police Commissioner uh, Bill Bratton, uh, you did a great job while you were serving, and uh, you always worry about the uh, all New Yorkers and all the American people. Thank you, and. Have a, a great Memorial Day weekend and uh, pray for our uh, soldiers in the field. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Keep up the fight. Thank you. We will. Okay. Now uh, we have uh, Congressman Lee Zeldin, also a Republican candidate for New York governor. Congressman Zeldin, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. It's good to be with you all. Well, I understand uh, you have uh, some uh, new polls. Yeah, actually, you know, we're, we're coming straight to the Cats Roundtable with the uh, the exclusive. We just got out of the field in our Republican Party primary poll. We, uh, we were in the field May 24th and 25th. So earlier this week, uh, 600 likely Republican Party primary voters and a margin of error of 4%. Uh, maintaining a 23-point lead, uh, we came in at 41% in the poll. The next closest competitor was at... 18%. So uh, we're excited because, you know, this primary is its just a month from tomorrow. It's going to come up quickly. We've been campaigning hard. I'm in Buffalo now. Uh, we're all in. We can't possibly be outworked. And the support has been amazing. And, uh, and I wanted to share the good news first with the Cats Roundtable. Well, thank you so much for the exclusive. And, uh, and uh, you're in Buffalo. You're going to be out this Memorial Day weekend. Tell us, you're a veteran. Tell us about the Memorial Day and what you're feeling in your heart and which and, and uh, when you're out there fighting. We live in the greatest country in the history of the world. And the reason why we are able to live in this great nation, it's not because of anybody who is in government today. It's because of generations who came before us who paid the ultimate sacrifice in defense of our freedom, our liberty, our flag, our constitution. Memorial Day is not about the beach. It's not about the sales. It's not about the barbecue. It's good that we find an opportunity to get together with community and to enjoy our freedom this weekend. That actually is something that we should be finding this opportunity to do this weekend, but we also need to keep in perspective what it's really all about. And the men and women who raised their hand to serve gave up their life for all of us. We can never finish trying to repay our gratitude and respect our admiration for what they did for all of us. And, uh, you know, with, with that with that heavy heart of all of those lost lives through the years and the generations and the courage and the sacrifice, uh, let's also enjoy the weekend because I think that's what these fallen heroes would want. Congressman Ed Cox here. Now, you serve with an airborne unit abroad. What did you learn from that experience? I was serving with people who were the best of the best, and they were there not just uh, – they weren't there for money or rank or fame or fortune. They served because they believe in a cause greater than themselves. 
And it was an honor to try to wear the same shoes of those who came before me. And uh, I mean, I lived the seven army values, loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, personal courage. I think that we need more people in government who have who served in the military. Uh, right after World War II, Congress was almost 100% made up of veterans. After Vietnam, it was just over three quarters, and now the number is less than one in five. Uh, it, I would encourage anyone out there, if you're a veteran uh, and you're willing to do it, to stand up uh, and to continue your service in, in more ways, because uh, I think our country needs good leaders, because there are other people who are stepping up, and some people have gotten elected to Congress and state state legislature here in New York, and you kind of scratch your head and wonder how they got elected and what they're doing there. We need some more good people to stand up. Well, you you were serving in Congress. You had several terms, and you're getting some seniority, and it's pretty clear we're going to be in the majority again. Republicans are going to be in the majority. Yet you decided you'd leave Congress to run for governor. Why did you do that? We have to save our state. This is it. If you care about crime and public safety, you want to back the blue. If you're concerned about affordability and taxes and, and opportunity, whether it's your son or daughter's education or it's restrictions on individual freedom and not respecting liberty, the list is long of ways that this state capital with one-party Democrat rule, supermajorities in the Assembly and Senate, outsized power of people who self-describe as socialists, and AOC is trying to get a whole bunch more of them elected. We need balance. We need common sense. We have to save our state, and I'm all in to get it done. Lee, uh, Anthony Weiner, you and I didn't uh, serve uh, with one another. And frankly, I'm kind of rooting for the other guy. I think he'd be easier to beat than you would be. But on the polling, I'm just curious if you have any insight into that Zogby poll that came out. Was there a methodology problem that they uh, had or was he, you know, sometimes he's known for putting his finger on a scale for a particular candidate. He's kind of infamous for that. But um, there was another poll that uh, at least one host around here has been touting. Could you tell us a little bit about why that one was off? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, it's, it's 100% fake. It's a, it's a BS poll, to be honest. It's not within a galaxy of accurate. Uh, it is one of those thumb-on-scale type polls. Uh, what we do when we, uh, when we conduct our polls is that we reach out to people who uh, are Republican Party primary voters, and we make sure they're planning on voting in the Republican Party primary. And the, we do the sample all throughout the entire state and geographically and gender and all sorts of other factors to make sure that that's right. But what they do is they, you know, they, they, they have this like online portal platform, and you have people filling it out who you can't even confirm that they're in fact a Republican Party primary voter and it's just a, a bizarre way of conducting it, but it helps achieve the result of, you know, trying to to put your finger down, uh, your thumb down on the scale and get a desired result. Uh, but, you know, listen, the, the reality has been different. All the other polls that have recently come out, regardless of whether it's a poll that's come out from my campaign or polls that have come out from others, Emerson College and PIX11 just came out with a poll uh, earlier this month that had me up eight in their poll. Uh, so, yeah, no, that was that, that's unfortunate. But, uh, you know, as you know, 
that kind of comes with the territory that people play games and yes. it's just, it's, Congressman, it's we have to take a, it's accurate. Congressman, uh, we have to take a break uh, and, uh, and good luck. And uh, it's going to be a wonderful weekend. I hope you do a lot of campaigning. God bless you and God bless America. Thank you so much. Uh, take care, everybody. Thank you. And uh, let's take a break and we come back. We have Paul Lounces talking about the economy. Oh, oh, excuse me, Nicole Jolinas. Oh, I thought Paul we were... Lounces is coming on after. Okay, so Nicole we'll... Jolinas and and she's going to talk about subway subway safety, crime. Are workers ready to come back to the office? And of course, Dr. Peter Mikolos, our Renaissance uh, medical genius. Keep it right here. Take, Cats take at a night. A common sense recap of the day's biggest stories. It's John Katsimatidis and Cats at Night on 77 WABC. Welcome back to the John Katsimatidis Cats at Night show. On the line for us right now is Nicole Galina of the Manhattan Institute. She's also a New York Post columnist. And you've been writing up a storm when it comes to subway crime and if people feel safe. Nicole Galina, do you think we'll ever get back to where we were before the pandemic? I think we can get back to where we were in terms of ridership and virtually non-existent crime on the subway, because it's not that we don't know what to do. It's just a matter of political will. We cannot let hundreds of thousands of people every single day jump over the turnstile, enter the system, cause insecurity and crime within the system. But then once police arrest people, which they've, I have to give the mayor credit, they've been doing a better job over the past few months then the rest of the justice system also has to make sure that there is a penalty for the crimes that you have already committed before you go on to commit murder. I mean, for example, two weeks ago, police arrested a a 22-year-old man in a Brooklyn subway uh, for jumping the turnstile, found out he had a loaded gun, and a judge just let him right back out on the street. So, you know, it doesn't do any good to make these arrests and then let continue the cycle. How many people, Nicole, how many people are actually riding the subways? And the last time I talked to somebody at MTA about a month ago, was like 57%. Is that higher yeah, or lower? It's basically about the same. It's it's uh, sometimes it hits sixty percent on a good day, but it's it, it is a very very slow recovery. So that guy had uh, he jumped the turnstile and he had a legal possession of a firearm and he was just let go. Yeah, basically. I mean, he faces a charge, but you know the judge let him go on no you, bail. You face, uh, you face a charge only bail. if you show up in court. Yeah, I mean, he will, you know, he will most likely show up in court, but setting no bail sends a signal that this is not a serious crime, that this is kind of like, you know, if if you were a first-time shoplifter or something, maybe it would be okay to set no bail. But, you know, you know someone going into the subway system with with an illegal loaded gun is up to no good, and to put them right back out there with no no supervision. I mean, you you are just creating the next even more serious crime that the police then have to to respond to. Nicole Anthony Weiner, isn't there a, a kind of a chicken and egg problem that we have in that the actually the more crowded the streets are, the more crowded the subways are. Actually, crime goes down because there are more people around and people feel generally safer. And yet we're having trouble getting people, employers, to send people back to work because they don't feel safe in the subway to begin with. How do you crack this nut? What's the way to kind of end this cycle? I know we all want to reduce crime. We want more police down there. We want more crimes prosecuted. But don't we also need to have business owners say, hey, listen, we need our employees to start showing up at work 
so that these places are more crowded and they feel safer. Yeah, absolutely, Anthony. You're absolutely right that that in March of 2020, we had three murders on the subways within a month. We had not seen three murders in a month. I mean, you would have to go back to 1990, but even then, you didn't have three murders in a month. You might have had two in a month. So definitely, when ridership plummeted to almost nothing, the criminal element did not go away. You know, people suffering from severe mental illness that causes them to commit random crimes and people just looking to rob and assault people continue to stay in the subway system while everybody else left. And so if you were the only person who had to take the train in April 2020, you were at much greater risk. But the problem is, yeah, you have a chicken and egg situation now where people don't go back because they feel it's unsafe and because they won't come back they help to keep it less safe than it could be. And I think the only way you fix the chicken and egg situation is a much, much more aggressive presence of not only police, but greater uh, efforts for social work, which, again, to the mayor's credit, is working better over the past few weeks. I mean, they've gotten 1,300 homeless people off the subways and also just Put the summer youth workers in bright T-shirts and have them go down into the subways and greet people and ask if they need directions, ask if they need any help. I mean, if there are not enough people on the subways, you can put civilian workers down there and try to make a crowd until one comes back. And Nicole Galinas, what a lot of people don't realize is that these major crimes, they're the ones that are in the headlines and the papers. We just had Commissioner Bratton on the line before where... Somebody he knew was threatened with a knife and he said, I'll cut off your head. But there was also a recent social media video where a woman, you know, got up uh, after, you know, she was sitting next to a guy. He seemed he creeped her out and then he grabbed her by the back of her head with her hair. And then he was kind of walking up and down uh, in the subway car with her holding, you know, she was terrified and she's mouthing the words to the cell phone video. Please help me. She ended up never reporting it because obviously she's scared, you know, because of the bail reform law. He right. might find out. They'll, that she turn, is. they'll turn. If he gets arrested, they'll turn right. uh, that woman's uh, home it, address to, to her, her Exactly. Lawyer. So that's why there is all of those incidents and people talk to one another that are also preventing people from getting on the subway. Right. I think you're absolutely right that you don't have to be the victim of a violent crime to be put off by the constant lower level crime and harassment. You know, if you get on a subway car and there's a disturbed individual at the corner of the car muttering to himself and pacing back and forth, most likely he's not going to to commit a violent crime. But you have in your head, okay, this person who just just, uh, shot uh, and killed the person in broad daylight on the subway, he was also muttering and pacing. So you don't want to be in these uncomfortable situations. And so that's why people are staying away from the subway. And, of course, it doesn't help that, you know, every time— I I don't want my kids in the subway, Nicole. Yeah, I mean, I I take the subway, and sometimes it's fine, and sometimes someone makes you really uncomfortable, and that means if I don't have to take it, I will. Well, you won't take it alone at three o'clock in the morning because definitely no. you're uncomfortable. No, no, I, I, yeah. I, I and I used to. I mean, I, I wouldn't say three o'clock in the morning, but I yeah. would take the subway home at one a.m. and not think very much of it. I don't think I would do that today. Nicole Galinas, thank you, Manhattan Institute, and uh, thank you so much for reporting in, and and we'll talk to you again real soon. And uh, have a great uh, Memorial Day weekend and pray for our our vets and pray for our soldiers. I will, and I hope all of you do the same. Thank you. And uh, I understand now we have Paul Luntzis.
uh, on, and Paul is a uh, a. Uh, well, how would you describe yourself, Paul? We are a registered investment advisor, John, with the under the SEC, and we manage separate accounts. We customize each account, each account for clients by buying individual securities. And a friend of of uh, Warren Buffett's, so his picture, mm-hmm. his picture, and Paul Luntz's was on on the same page of the Wall Street Journal at at the time of the, the Buffett convention, and. Um, Tell us, the markets, are they recovering? Some people are saying, well, we think they're going to recover. Some people are saying it's a dead man's bounce or whatever they call it. And Well, what say you? Uh, I think a lot of it, John. The Fed is really trying to balance fighting inflation. Um, you know, the readings for the CPI were 8.5 in April um, and 8.3. Um, prior to that, after that. So, you know, it's they think it might be coming down a little. They're really trying to fight inflation. They're raising rates. They're supposedly going to raise rates 50 basis points in June and 50 basis points in July to take the Fed funds rate to 1.75 to 2. And so that's the one side of the equation. But what's happening now, the Federal Reserve minutes from the meeting May 3rd and 4th, they're typically produced three three weeks later. And they came out May 26th. And people just felt that Clearly, they're not going to do a 75 basis point increase in June or July, so that that market's really like that. They didn't, you know, they didn't mention that at all. And there's even a slight probability, slight, that maybe they won't even do 50 basis points in June. Um, I think they will, but it, they may not. The personal consumption expenditure numbers came out. Consumer prices rose 6.3 percent in April, and from a year ago down from a year ago, and in March they were 6.6. So people think maybe inflation has peaked, and no one really knows. And that's part of what's really impacting the stock market. It's all tied, or a lot of it, to interest rates. If rates don't, ra- if they don't raise rates a lot, um, people view that as a positive, and the market's responding accordingly. Uh, my personal opinion is uh, inflation has peaked a little bit. Uh, oil is at $115, $116 a barrel, and I think there's going to be a limitation of, of that. But uh, it could come down if the uh, America opened up their uh, oil spigots a little bit, uh, if President Biden would allow that. Uh, um, and I'll ask you another question, Paul Lunces. Can can the Fed, when if they're going to keep increasing interest rates because we're not opening up the oil spigots, because you, you have to do either one or the other, either open up the oil spigots or raise rates, can we create our own banana peel and create our own recession? Yeah, you know, that's a, a really good question, John. The reality is... The reality is by the Fed continuing to raise interest rates and not addressing the high prices for oil and gas, by the way, John, natural gas went over, I think, $9. For years, it was under $2. So, you know, all that energy and a lot of that is self-imposed. They need to allow that to to freely flow and, 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 and reduce those prices. Home prices are rising. Rents are rising. Wages are rising. So there's a lot of challenges that they face, but people are really and, and concerned nobody, right and- well, nobody's going to buy a house if you have to pay five and a half, six percent interest for a thirty-year mortgage. Well, the thirty-year mortgage, John, in January of twenty-one was two point six five. Today, it's five point three. It's oh doubled. 
And the price of a home back then, the, the average price was 401700 It's 570000 today. So housing is clearly slowing down significantly uh, because of the doubling of the 30-year mortgage. So, you know, the, the, the Fed is really in a conundrum. And what's happening is the 10-year Treasury, which is an interesting bellwether, it's gone from 312 on May 6th. It's down in the 270, 271, 272 range. So that means people don't think inflation is permanent nor here to stay. Well, there's a, I think there's that, that cap of 115 to 120 on oil, so we reached that cap. Anthony Weiner, you wanted to say something. Paul, I'm just curious. What is the impact of the collapse of these tech stocks having on the whole market? I mean, we, you know, we all invested in Netflix and Peloton and all these things when we thought the world was ending. But people eventually are going to go out to movies again. They're going to go out for a walk instead of being on their Peloton were, did we get a little bit too excited about those stocks? And is that are, are they just coming back to earth now? That's exactly what's happening. A lot of those stocks, Anthony, a lot of the tech stocks, Cloudflare and many others, and I'm not making a comment on whether they're a good or bad business, just the valuation. Some were selling for 80 times revenues, and now they might be selling for 20 or 25. The That's real still too high. Prob- <laughs> it, it's crazy. I mean, the real number should probably 8, 9, or 10. Um, so the valuations have come down. It's kind of interesting. The more money you were losing in, as a stock, the better the stock price did. So I think things are really coming back down you know, to normal, and, and that's what's happened on the tech side, Netflix and some of the others. The growth rates are unsustainable, but that's all being fueled. That's all tied to interest rates. Low interest rates and free money cause speculation. They force people to go out on the risk curve. And there's fairly nowhere for people to go in the fixed income world. Where are you going to go? Municipals, corporates, treasury, CDs. You know, over time, they were yielding, you know, a few months back, they were yielding 1%, one5 Thanks you for know, cheering us up, live brother. On that. <laughs> Paul, Paul Lunces, thank you. Have a great Memorial Day uh, weekend and pray for our soldiers in battle. And God bless you and God bless America. Thank you. And, uh, uh, and we're going to be taking a break now. And when we come back, we have an interesting discussion by Mr. Cox, Mr. Happy. And I wonder if Mr. Weiner is going to tune in on that. Well, there's a poll out about Mr. de Blasio that's quite interesting. You want to stay tuned for those uh, well, not surprising results. Let's, Keep let's it right. Stay- Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. Bruno. He's your numero uno. Welcome back to the John Katzmatidis Cats at Night Show. We've got a lot to talk about. I know there's been a, we were talking about polling before with Congressman Lee Zeldin and Andrew Giuliani, but Anthony Weiner, you brought up an interesting point about a poll, an Emerson poll regarding de Blasio. The results are so shocking that Ed Cox thought they were fake. But uh, tell us about it. Well, there's starting to be some new polls around the new districts. The districts have only been out for a couple of weeks now, and so they're starting to poll them. One, obviously, the, those of us who live here in Manhattan, you have Nadler versus Maloney, two clash of these titans. That's pretty close. I heard Maloney is ahead 20 points. Ma- Maloney's ahead, but interestingly, in, in, that, in that poll, they're both in the high 20s, low 30s, and these are very well-known characters. But the one that I found fascinating is they created this district in lower Manhattan, Park Slope, 
Brownstone, Brooklyn, a little bit of Borough Park, Greenwich Village is very, very liberal district. And Bill de Blasio has announced he's running in it. The which, Yeah, that's the district that he represented in the city council back in the day. So a poll comes out that shows he's at 6%, which, okay, if it's a new district and he just jumped in, that might be reasonable, except that he's known by everyone. Like you having a low number of people pulling the lever for you in a poll is not a big problem if no one knows who you are yet. Like Mondale Williams, Mondale, what's his name? Jones. Jones. He had 7%, but no one knew him in the poll. De Blasio was known, as he should be, by 100% of the people in the polls, and he got 6% or 7%. (laughs) It's very bad news. Such bad news that if I were advising him, I mean, it's not like – the toughest thing to do in politics is not to persuade people to like you. It's to persuade people who don't like you to start liking you. That's a very difficult thing to be, to convince them that they were wrong about you. And and so it's very bad news for de Blasio. And uh, uh, Mr. Happy, uh, we had a discussion before, and you and Ed Cox were going to discuss it. Uh, uh, Durham, uh, the investigator, had a little bit of a setback on uh, – uh, uh, tell us on, on the investigation. Well, it's a big setback because the uh, the evidence has gone away to support all the money that's gone behind this special prosecutor and the only case that's come out of it. Uh, Ed, what do you think? So, you, describe it to the people who don't know what we're talking about so they know what we're talking about. The, the issue has really shifted to the FBI. This is the Durham the, investigation. The FBI knew, in fact, that he was representing the, the Clintons and the Clinton campaign. They knew him well. They knew that he was an operative. So they didn't take him seriously. Therefore, it's not material, his lie. It was sort of a little fib that they went along with, and it didn't impact them. That, well, that, that is his, that's his defense, but it's a, it is a, a really condemnation of the FBI and the way they did things with respect to Anthony Well, just for our listeners, I mean, just to set the table for this, this guy, Durham, special prosecutor, was put in charge of trying to find out this weird question of where the investigation of Donald Trump began. As it is, that's a weird question to be asking because who cares? The investigation is the investigation. After all of this that they've done, they've come up with this one high-profile case, which is the silliest case I think I've ever heard for such an investment of money. And that's, I think, what Mr. Happy was referring to. They have accused this guy who came in and said, I have evidence about weird dealings between Russia and Trump. I want to come in and meet with you guys. And the case is not whether that was, the information was true. The case is when he came in, did he say he was representing Hillary Clinton or this other guy, Jaffe? And that's the that's half the case. And the other case is, was it the fact that he said that material in any way? And on both of these things, the evidence is not very good. He meets with a guy for a 30 minute meeting. This guy, Baker, who the FBI said 116 times in the stand, he didn't remember questions about the meeting. There were no notes taken. There was no third party in, in, in the meeting. And then the, pro- the biggest problem, and I think Mr. Cox is referring to this, is the thing that they, he told them about, the FBI knew almost immediately was, was not a real thing. So it didn't have any material. They didn't do any great investigating. So all of this has come down to really this very narrow question. I think that, that But it's not, it's not Sussman who's on trial. It's the FBI that's on trial. So he's getting back to what is the real origin of the whole myth about And who Russia, was in charge of the FBI then? And that was Comey. Back to Comey. Again. Back to Comey. No, no, I'm no big fan of and, his. But can I the, – the, the problem with making this about Sussman is maybe the thing that made the investigation about Trump is all the dealings that Trump had with Russia. I mean, you know, oh. <laughs> that would be the most obvious question. I mean, the guy's having meetings literally in Trump Towers with Russian operatives. 
So to make this about Trump, and, and then the fact that Hillary's involved with this, by the way, this lawyer worked for Perkins Coy, the largest Democratic firm in Washington. He was a former prosecutor. He was former in the cyber division. These guys knew who he worked for. This is a, a bizarre question. That's why Sussman didn't even mount a defense. He, I, I believe he didn't call any witnesses. He didn't, and he so, didn't testify the, the Chicago, either. this case was handed over to the Chicago Borough to take a look at it. And they said, okay, tell us who the source of this information is. Washington refused to say who the source was because they would have dropped the case immediately. So the Washington FBI wanted this case to continue. They want so that the Hillary campaign could make something of it. I the, don't know about that. The odd thing about it is Mr. that Happy? Sussman is probably guilty because he talked to Baker and said, I am here as your friend and your colleague, and I don't represent anybody that's involved but that was a lie he actually represented hillary well wait a minute first of all he was he represented a law firm that represented all kinds of democrats and the only question is whether he said that to baker in the in the meeting and there's no evidence that he did no i i don't i think that's the baker only question testified that he did or well, baker now says he did but he can't remember yeah. anything else about this 30 minute meeting he took no notes and it wasn't in a formal investigating setting at all look well, this was, there, was you, you don't see cases like this very often to Anthony, be honest, Anthony, the special prosecutor, this Sussman's not really on trial. The special prosecutor is trying to get what actually happened and getting it out into the public. And this trial is a way to do it, that the FBI actually made political decisions here rather than making decisions on the matter. It, it that, that, yeah, that, that could well be the case, but that is not this case. And it's crashing. That's not what the Sussman case is. No, the Sussman case no, comes no. out to a very narrow it, question about It's a about way to get the said. story out, and the story is getting out. But that's the, not – you F should not use the criminal justice system against a human being no. to do a narrative. Oh, you should do it because this you is a, guy no, This is a valid case. You should also impeach somebody also to prove a narrative. Well, he's – the prosecution has crashed. Because their only document is a, an email with a note on it that raises the question about whether it was fraud. And the judge has precluded the jury from considering it, even though it was in evidence at one time. So Judge Cooper wow. has put the lid on it. Guys, There's, we want to continue this, but maybe we'll continue it on Monday or Tuesday and because the courts are closed. It's after 5 <laughs> o'clock Friday, Memorial Day weekend. Let's take a break, and we're going to come back with Dr. Michalos with some hot news. It's a common-sense recap of the big stories. It's Cats at Night on 77 WABC. Welcome back to the John Katzmatidis Cats at Night show. On the line for us right now is our resident medical genius, our renaissance uh, guru himself, Dr. Peter Mikolos. What do you have for us today? Hello, team. Well, today we're going to talk about how to keep our uh, audience uh, safe from UV light and protecting our eyes and our skin. But we're going to give some tips away. But before we do that, we're going to talk about a new study that came out from the European Society of Cardiology, and the jury is out on alcohol, that if you drink more than total one bottle of wine per week or more than three and a half beers per week, they follow people for 5.4 years in uh, Ireland and areas of the European Union, and they showed you have a twofold increased incidence in having atrial fibrillation, heart cardiomyopathy, and congestive uh, heart failure. And it turns out now that we're learning Dr. more Michalos, about the, the liquor companies are going to put out a hit for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, I'm just repeating science. It's not my work. I, all I do is report on what's out there in the literature. It's not the, the reality is that 
it's more complicated now because we're learning about the gut microbiome and all the ener- the organisms that live in our gut. We know that there's like 100,000 viruses that live in there, 50,000 different types of bacteria now that we can identify using genes. And it turns out that alcohol affects some of the bacteria in our gut. And what it does is it affects the permeability of the gut. So some of the toxins of dead and dying bacteria leak into our bloodstream and they cause inflammation. And that inflammation results in a heart inflammation and an increased incidence of something called cardiomyopathy. And that's what this study shows. So actually this is gonna be helpful because now we're gonna learn that if we can alter the gut microbiome or possibly take certain probiotics, we might be able to decrease the effects and toxic effects of alcohol on the heart. And uh, this is uh, the news that's uh, been we out. Can, Dr. Michalos, we can make you a billionaire. By, Moderation. By, by, if we can be able to drink and not get sick and have side effects from uh, from uh, not, liquor. Not be hungover, even. And not be, well, forget it. Who cares about the hungover? I'm talking about not getting well. Mm-hmm. The bottom line is moderation. It turns out to be the best thing. And then the other thing we want to protect our audience, that now that summer is coming, we now know that ultraviolet radiation is cumulative over a lifetime and that UVB causes skin cancer and UVA causes skin aging and makes your skin red. So use an SPF, their mark, it protects you more. So use like a 50 and people forget little kids because we now know it's cumulative. You've got to start protecting little kids with hats and even get them UV sunglasses because it's cumulative over a lifetime. Mm. So wear protective sunglasses to reduce your chances of cataracts, macular degeneration, protect your skin from skin cancer like squamous cell, melanoma, especially if you're light skin, fair skin. So these things you can do in the country of uh, New Zealand, we could do it in every beach in the United States too. They have dispensers of sunscreen on every public beach in uh, Australia and New Zealand. And that would be a great start. We should do that in the United States and start teaching kids like they do in Australia. And they even have clothing lines that have SPF built into the clothes and they make kids wear a hat and they teach them starting kindergarten. And we could save as a society millions of cases of uh, skin cancers and hundreds of thousands of cases of so, uh, Doctor Ed Kosher, sure say, you're saying that those pictures of our great grandmothers at the beach, completely dressed uh, with parasols over their head, that they did it right and we did it wrong. Is that what you're saying? We now know that that's why you can see some of the pictures of the women back in the uh, 20s, and they wore hats, and their skin was impeccable. We now see the skin on some modern women who are in their 60s and 70s, and that's why they're at the dermatologist every day and getting their laser resurfaced of their skin. But we just want our audience to be healthy. Bottom line, wear a hat with a brim, wear UV protective sunglasses, and we want a healthy audience, well, and you guys are doing a great job. Th- on thank you. Tonight. Thank you, Dr. Michalos. You're also going to have a, a, you're going to be on Sunday's Cats Roundtable at, uh, between 9 and 10 o'clock on, on Sunday, and we look forward to it. And you're going to tell people how to stay alive. Uh, Nelson Happy, Ed Cox, Anthony Weiner, Lydia Serrani. Have a great weekend. Don't forget, we're filling in Monday morning for Bernie and Monday Sid. Monday morning, me and Lydia will be here, and <laughs> our ratings will be higher than Bernie and Sid. <laughs> and uh, what do we? I hear the Superman thing. Yes. What, what, is, what, what, what do we stand for? Truth, truth justice, justice, and, and the American, American way. way. God bless uh, everybody. God bless our vets. God bless America. Thank you so much.